If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And I'm just going to read through verse 22. Finally, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited on the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So today we're going to look at First Peter in verses 3 through 17, Lord willing. But I just wanted to read that whole chapter to you. Peter puts that whole passage together for us. And we'll just uh, take just a couple minutes. And I want to take you through just a portion of Peter's own testimony and see how Peter became a witness for Jesus Christ before he wrote this book to all the Christians that were going to read it and obey it by the Holy Spirit. So just thinking back as Peter's walk, as we see him coming to the Bible, he sees all the, he gets to spend three years with Jesus. He sees all the signs, all the wonders, all the miracles. He hears all the teaching of Jesus Christ. And he's the first in Matthew 16, 16. He replied to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the first of the 12. And then we see Peter denying Jesus Christ three times right in the courtyard while Jesus is being tried and sentenced. Servant girls come up to him, and he, I'm not with Jesus. Right, the people in the crowd come up to him at last, and he, he's swearing, he's taking an oath. I don't know this man. I've never been with him. So then in Acts 3 and 4, we see Peter and John, after the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, sent by Jesus Christ as he's ascended at the right hand of the Father, right? And in Acts 3 and 4, we see Peter and John being examined before the council of the Jews for healing a lame man while preaching the gospel. So they're doing exactly what we're going to look at today. They're doing good works while preaching this resurrected Messiah. And I'll just read Acts 4, 7 through 22 for us. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to you, all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And then again, I'll, I'll read a little bit out of Acts 5, but we see Peter and the apostles, they're doing more good works for all the people while preaching the gospel. And the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy and put the apostles in prison, but they were let out. And they began preaching the gospel again, and then the apostles are brought back before the council again. In Acts 5.27, it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. <clears throat> so, I just gave you just this small portion of Peter's testimony. And by reading these texts and thinking about how we must witness, the first thought as we read these texts is, that's Peter, and that's the apostles. And we are not apostles, and we are not in the first century church, and we may not even believe that these signs and gifts are still continuing. So what does this have to do with me, right? But I want us to see today as we go through these scriptures, just as we kind of looked at in Acts last time, the world of unbelieving men, these men have not changed. Sinful men has not changed. The philosophies have not changed. The way they can punish us for being Christians has not changed. It's still the same today, which makes the word that we're going to go through relevant for each one of us in here. So just as it was relevant for the apostles in their time, it is relevant for each one of us today who wants to be obedient to Christ by faith. So as you read your word, it's for you and your life today. And as we go through this scripture, it's going to be for each one of us who proclaim the name of Christ. So with that portion... So Peter's testimony in our minds. Let's look at our verses today. And if you turn back to 1 Peter in chapter 3, verse 13. And I'll read through 17 again. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And part of the thing I want to show you here, because this is a verse that all the men that are professional, apologetic guys, they go to this verse. And they go to 1 Peter 3.15. But this verse is surrounded by a lot more of God's word. And we tend to just look at this verse and say, we have to proclaim the gospel. We have to make a defense. But if we take this in context and we look at everything that surrounds it, we have to live obedient to God first. It's very clear when we go through this scripture that if we are not living obedient to God, our witness, it will suffer. Our defense, it will be lacking. It won't have power. It might be true, and it might be professional, and it might sound good, but there will be no power with it. Peter states there must be a witness of how you live your life. People must see this. That's the whole reason they come to accuse you, as we're going to see. So we're not talking to these itinerant apologetics, these professional apologists that... That's all they're due. They, they, their payroll is to go. Although they're good, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have some of these men, but we're going to talk to everyday Christians here. So as we look at these verses today, we must realize that Peter is writing to these verses to the average everyday Christians and explaining how these Christians must be witnesses for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter, he's not writing to highly educated or the professional or itinerant Christian apologists, as I just said. And we might perceive because of our own thoughts, our own being taught. We have to get rid of some of these traditions. If we, We've all been looking at traditions, thing. this may be something we need to get rid of, right? Maybe everybody in here should be an apologist. Maybe not with their words, but with their lives. So, who is Peter writing these verses to? Think about that as you read these verses. So, Peter is speaking to everyone who has been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and and are now the obedient adopted children of God the Father. And if we look at 1 Peter in 3.8, he says, Finally, all of you. That's the verse I started with earlier. Finally, all of you, everyone, all of you, not just the highly educated, right? So Peter is writing to all of you. And if we just go back and read First Peter real quick, we see he's writing to, as I just said, those who've been born again, those who've been adopted, the children of God, sojourners, exiles, slaves, wives, and husbands. That's who Peter's writing to, which just means everybody in here. (laughs) So let's look at 1 Peter 3 and 13. Peter starts this passage out here. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And we'll just start with zealous for good. What's that mean? Zealous here means you are passionate, eager, and excited for what is good. Well, what is good? In this context, it means everything in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. I'll read that. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So my question for our church, are we zealous to do good? That's the good he's talking about. Are we zealous to do all of this? Right, I'm asking this question because as we look at these next verses, we do not want to confuse the harm that we may actually deserve with the harm that we do not deserve. If we are out doing evil, we deserve to suffer. We deserve to be persecuted. We deserve the government to come and crack down on us, right? If we're doing evil. But if we're doing good, if we are zealous for what is good, Peter asks, who is there to harm you? If, if, if you are zealous for what is good, and Peter's simply stating, he, he's not saying that if you are zealous for what is good, that God will keep you from being harmed and that nobody will harm you. And we'll see in the following verse 14 that someone may harm us for doing good. But Peter is saying, he, he's putting this question forward and he's saying, who in their right mind or what kind of person would harm you for being zealous for what is good? Who would do that? Therefore, be zealous for what is good. It seems that Peter puts this question here in verse 13 so that every Christian will think about the culture that they are living in and the worldview of the people in which they live amongst and understand who would want to harm them. Right? Who in this little city of Salem, Oregon, would want to harm each one of you for being zealous for what is good. You should think about that, right? We should be prepared to the best of our abilities to know the culture and the worldviews and the unbelievers in which we are to live and witness amongst. We need to know who would do evil against us for being zealous for what God says is good. So in their day, they knew. And as we read that, we read through the Bible, we see that the Christians knew the culture around them and what their culture believed, what they worshipped, and how they lived. And if, if you remember those last two sermons in Athens, Paul took the time. He read their poets. He knew their sayings. He saw their idols. He saw their enslavement to these idols, these false gods. He knew what was happening in Athens. Do we take the time to do that in our own little setting, our own little culture, the families, the neighbors, the people we're going to engage with, with business, with buying, with all of it? Out in the public square, as Jesse and the guys, David and Christian, go to the Broadway Commons, do we know what they believe? Do we know what they worship? Do we know the sins they're enslaved to? Right? Peter's saying, you should be prepared. I just wrote down a couple things I thought about. And as Christians, do we know who would want to harm us for being zealous for what is good? Is that on our mind? Right? Do we know the culture around us and what they worship? Are we in a Christian bubble? Do we ever get out of that bubble? Do we just hang around with people that we know will not harm us? Right? We don't want to be harmed. Nobody wants to be harmed. So we just stay in this little bubble and we don't go out. Right? Do we know about the cults? These false religions? Some of them which profess Christianity. Do we know about secular atheism and evolution? We don't have to know everything about these, but we need to know something about these. Do we know about the LGBTQ plus, 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 forever, plus religion? What they worship? What their sacraments are? Do we know about child sacrifice, abortion? How they want money and they want to kill babies? Unprotected. Do we know about these things? Do we know how to talk to people about these things? Just little things like that. There's, we don't have to be professionals at it, but Peter's saying, who of these people are you going to meet would want to harm you for being zealous for what is good? Just something to think about. 
So move on to verse 14, part A. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So you've gone in. The people have found you that want to harm you, right? And Peter's letting his readers know that suffering should be unlikely or viewed as a remote possibility, but nevertheless, suffering for righteousness will happen. This will happen. If you read just the whole book of 1 Peter, you know it will happen. If you just think about church history and the martyrdom, you know it will happen. In some cases, it's worse. In America, our persecution is, we're canceled off Facebook. Peter says, you will be blessed. And blessed means, blessed here in the Greek, it means the happy ones. So if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be the happy ones? Not the people that harm you? The happy ones. Joy. Happiness. Just for being zealous for what is good. Why will Christians who suffer for righteousness' sake be the happy ones? That was my question. <laughs> you know. I wrote down, this is my answer, because they are doing the will of God and giving glory to God. And we'll just go through some scriptures on why Peter would have said this. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20, he says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Do you think about that? Gracious in the sight of my God, your God. And Peter heard this straight from the Master, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and you perse- and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets you were, who were before you. Plan on being persecuted, but you will be blessed. Your reward will be great in heaven. So trying to wrap my mind around this, right? The grace of God by the Holy Spirit empowers the Christian to endure suffering for righteousness' sake, and then God rewards that Christian with happiness. (laughs) I mean, can you believe that? It's true. We're not talking about the prosperity gospel here. But God will reward you with happiness. Have we tested this? Have you tested this? I'm not saying put God to the test, but have you tested your life against these scriptures to see if he will reward you for happiness, for being zealous for what is good? Praise God for that. It's all by his grace, and he still rewards us. Just praise God for that. Let's move on. Peter goes on here in 14b and 15a. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter here, he's an Old Testament scholar. Remember, Christ opened up his mind to the Old Testament and pointed him and the rest of the people around him to Christ in the Old Testament. So they know the Old Testament. They know where Christ is at in the Old Testament. So Peter here, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And he says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. And Peter's going to open this up to us a little bit. 
Peter, he's just knowledgeable in the Old Testament, and he applies it to the lives of the New Testament church. We'll go through this. So he starts out, Have no fear of them. And by quoting Isaiah, Peter says to all Christians, Do not fear man, do not fear what men fear, and do not fear what man can do to you. Just as he said to the wives, as he said to the wives in 1 Peter, he says, do not fear anything that is frightening. And that's in the passage just before we're reading. Commentator Daniel Doraney writes on this, do not fear. And he says, do not fear might be the most common command in the Bible. The Bible tells us to shake off fear about a hundred times and gives a reason almost every time. It also tells us what not to fear. We should not fear conspiracy, shame, insults, financial loss, or loneliness. We should not fear enemies, hostility, or suffering. We should not fear death if you are in Christ. So how can we get rid of this fear? And let's just listen to what our master says in Matthew 10, verses 26 through 28. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will be revealed, or hidden that will be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So I wrote here, the, the, the fear and reverence of the Lord overrides the fear of man. Let the Lord be your fear. Let the Lord be your dread, as we read from the prophet Isaiah. Let him be your love as well. Let's move on. Do not be troubled, nor be troubled, Peter says. And he uses this term, terasso, which means... Do not be shaken up. Do not be disturbed. Do not be frightened. And it often applies to emotional turmoil. Most of it's in your head. And I just wrote, how can we obey this command? Right? Because that stuff is coming to your mind all the time. Especially if you're going to go put yourself in a situation where you know you're going to have to speak up about Jesus Christ. And you know the people do not want to hear it. How can we not be troubled about this in our mind emotionally? And I just wrote, faith in Christ overrides the troubles and anxieties of this world. And I'll read to you from John 14:1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John fourteen twenty seven, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So we'll move on. But before we move on, I want to read this. Vodi Bauckham, he writes on this 14b and 15a. He writes in his book, page 44 of Expository Apologetics, he writes this, and I thought this was good. Most Christians do not engage in apologetics due to fear. Now we see the true nature of this fear. Ultimately, it is fear of man. We hold men and their approval, or fear of the consequences of their disapproval, in higher regard than we do the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus. I need to be reminded of this frequently. I, like the rest of my brothers and sisters in Christ, have a tendency to, speak, to seek the easy way out. I like to be liked. I don't like being considered out of touch or out of mind by strangers whom I meet along the way. Therefore, unless I remind myself constantly of my need to honor Christ the Lord as holy, I will end up honoring my reputation or worse yet, the opinions of men, as most prized and precious to my heart. The result is compromise that dishonors Christ and deprives my hearers 
of the greatest news they will ever know. Oh, how I need to sanctify Christ in my heart. How I must remove these fears. If we continue to let the fear be there and and be troubled by it, we may not preach the good news that somebody needs to hear that day. So let's move on. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, 1 Peter 15b, or 15a. And this to me, the, the apologist looks at the next part of the verse, but this right here is the central, the central duty of every Christian. This is probably the most important part of the whole passage. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If, if, if you're not doing this, how can you even give a defense of the hope that is in you? You would be fake. You'd be a hypocrite. And I wrote just to start out with this verse right here, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. This is not a one-time thing that the Christian does. But just as the Christian continually prays, hallowed be your name, Father, to God, the Christian should continually honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I see this as the more you do this, the more mature you will be in your Christianity. So it's just not a one-time thing. I've made Christ my Lord and walk away. This is daily. This is continually. This is let Christ take more and more ground of my mind and heart. Let him fill it up. Get rid of me. This is a daily thing, not just one time. And we'll kind of see this as we go through this part of the text. So the word honor here is sometimes replaced by set apart, but the literal Greek word is to sanctify. So here in the John MacArthur Study Bible, the meaning to set apart in your hearts Christ as Lord, this meaning, the heart is the sanctuary in which Christ prefers to be worshipped. Live in submissive communion with the Lord Jesus loving and obeying him, and you have nothing to fear. So if you are honoring Christ, the Lord is holy, all those fears are gone. Because there's no room for the fear. There's no room to be troubled in your mind. Christ is your all in all. I'll read this from Edmund Clowney. It's quite long, but it really just it made my mind think about what is it to daily make Christ holy in my mind and in my heart, to set him apart. There's so many worries throughout the day. There's so many things we need to do that are good, beautiful, true. Taking care of children, working, right? Serving the church, but daily honoring Christ the Lord is holy. Edmund Clowney writes, To break the throttling grip of fear, we must confess God's lordship with more than mental assent. We must confess it with our heart's devotion. Setting him apart as Lord means bowing before him in the adoration of praise. A praising heart is immune to the fear of people. Fear of another sort takes possession of our hearts and minds. A fear that does not flee in terror but draws near in awe and worship. We are amazed, then, at the force of the addition Peter makes. He says, literally, do not fear what they fear, but in your hearts sanctify the Lord, the Christ. He repeats the words of Isaiah, sanctify the Lord, but adds, the Christ. He does not hesitate to identify the Lord of hosts with Jesus Christ. More than that, He does so in a passage that calls for our total devotion to the Lord and his transcendent deity. Peter is not making a merely verbal connection between two meanings of the Lord as applied to God and men. He is explicitly identifying the one who slept in the stern of his fishing boat with the almighty creator of heaven and earth. 
Nor is Peter simply stating the orthodox theology of the earliest period of the church. He speaks from his own experience. The Father in heaven had enabled him to confess the deity of Christ as the Son of the living God. This reality of the resurrection had confirmed his conviction. Jesus could command the storm and the demons, had conquered death and ascended to the right hand of his Father. The Spirit of Christ, given from the throne of glory, worked in Peter, awe and reverence for his Lord and Savior. Filled with that awe, he scorned all that men might do to him. In prison, he could sleep securely. On trial, he could accuse his accusers. His secret was not simply that he had been with Jesus, but that the Lord Jesus was with him. Peter had heard Jesus say, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus had followed that solemn warning with words of supreme assurance to his disciples. Their Father in heaven has numbered every hair on their heads. Nothing can happen to them outside of his care. For the Christian, the fear of death has been removed by Christ's resurrection. He no longer shares the dread that shadows mortal life. Fear of atomic holocaust, of terrorist attacks, or wasting cancer. Certainly he does not fear those who may persecute him for Christ's sake. Indeed, he can understand that their very persecution is fear-driven. The fear of the light on the part of those who live in the darkness. And he's saying, those people who persecute you, they are more afraid of you because you're children of light. You're exposing them and the darkness they live in. They actually fear you more. That's why they're persecuting you. And Christ is that light. Do not fear. Do not be troubled. Honor Christ as Lord. Sanctify him in your heart as holy. And I wrote, as a Christian continually does this, that Christian will grow into spiritual maturity. We see it throughout Scripture. You grow and grow. It becomes easier and easier to set Christ apart. It becomes easier and easier not to fear man. Will we fail in this? Many times we will. But God is good. He's gracious. He's merciful. The people that are persecuting you, there is no mercy for them. So on to 15b. It says, 1 Peter 3, 15b. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And Peter's simply saying, he's saying, you must be prepared. Just be prepared. And I ask the question, how can we be prepared? And it's, and it's a simple answer. We can be prepared by reading God's word, meditating on it daily. And also, we can read what other men have wrote. We can read creeds, confessions, catechisms, books from true Christian authors. We can get insight from their biographies, their own experiences as following Christ, being persecuted, and we can see how the grace of God has made them the happy ones. So let's move on to make a defense. It means to reply to an accusation. And it's not saying in, the, in a court case or in a trial, but just how did this persecution start? As we saw in Acts, they come with an accusation. Could be true, could be false. But the defense is just the reply to that accusation. So defense here is where we get the word apologetics when we translate it back to the Greek. And basically it just means we must know the truths of God, what we believe, why we believe it, and how to communicate those beliefs to anyone at any time.
And like I said, we, this gets easier and easier as we do it. And I put just another short answer. In short, we must be prepared to share the gospel that has saved us with anyone at any time. I'll read to you 1 Peter verse 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. That's pretty easy. If that's happened to you, you should be able to share that with somebody else. Make a defense. Ask that person, why don't you obey Christ? Why don't you come out of the darkness and proclaim the excellencies of Him? Why do you accuse me of doing good? Why don't you do good? Right? Here's what's good. Let's go to the Word now. Right? You don't start out with the Word of God, but you lead them right to the Word of God. How can we get there quickly? How can we get to the Gospel so they can see their need for Christ? On this, I, read, I listened to this commentary in Lily, and he writes, that defense, that hope that is in you. He writes this, its nature, its ground, its object, and its influences. Tell another how you too, like those around you, were until now living without hope in the world, with no hope toward God, no hope for a dying hour, no hope for eternity. Then speak to others of our God and Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Open to them the glorious mystery of his person and work and death and resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand and the future return as the judge of the living and the dead and king of all the earth. Explain to him, moreover, your own personal interest in all of this through your living union by faith with the Son of God, the world's Redeemer, and the consequent indwelling and gracious witness of the Holy Spirit with your spirit, that you also are now children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs indeed, and joint heirs with Christ. Oh, what must be the value of the inheritance which has been bequeathed by the Almighty Father to the Son of His love? Go on, then, to explain that is the hope that enables you to bear without passion or murmuring the world's wrong, its slander, and insults, in which, like that divine form in the seven times heated furnace of Babylon, still shines victorious in its brightness, even through fires of martyrdom. Finally, with this account of hope that is in you, you may go on for the sake of the inquirer, to contrast your hope in all these respects with such hopes as he himself entertains are so limited in their scope, so insecure in their foundation, so uncertain of fulfillment, so inoperative for good on his moral and spiritual being, and so devoid of anything of hope for eternity." Basically, what he's saying is what Paul preached in Athens. He sees their worldview, and he says, your worldview is useless. You have no eternal hope. You don't even have anything that can hold you to a moral standard which you are commanded me to live by. But here, this will free you. Jesus Christ, he freed me. He adopted me. He gave me an inheritance. Repent of your sins. Come to Christ, and he will give you the free gift of the Holy Spirit. Be obedient to him. Be baptized. Profess his name among the nations. Make disciples. It's really a simple command if we would just keep it simple. But we try to add so much more to it. We try to... 
I mean, I do this in my daily life. Everything I try to make more difficult than it should be. <laughs> but it's a simple message, and it saved you. Let it save others around you. That's what Peter's saying. And he moves on. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we're, we're to be gentle. We're not supposed to just throw the gospel at people and walk away, remember? We're not trying to win an argument in a way that we can walk around and say, I'm the winner. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'll just read to you verses 24 through 26. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Gentleness, respect. They see your witness. They see that, why isn't this person fighting back? Why aren't they cursing me? Maybe I should listen to their message. It may take some time, and they may kill you. But you have a message. And you have a message to speak with gentleness and respectful of them. They are humans made in the image of God. Maybe have pity on them because they're enslaved to the snares of the devil. Do it with gentleness. If you would, turn over to 1 John chapter 1 as well. So just some verses I was thinking about. As I was reading this, and I'll read to you verses 1 through 4 here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are witnesses. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What makes our joy complete? But these people coming to Christ and having fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and also with us. John says that that will make our joy complete. He knew what persecution was. So the question there was, do we want these unbelievers who are persecuting us to have fellowship with God? That should be in the back of our mind. If God so loved the world that he sent his only son for the helpless, the ungodly, the sinners, and his enemies, we should want the same. So let's finish off and look at First Peter 3 and verse 16. We're doing all this in having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. So we're doing this without sinning against them and against God. We have a good conscience, even though we are the one being harmed for, for, for being zealous for what is good, for doing what is good, and just because the world doesn't believe it's good, if it's good to God and it's in his word, it should be good to us. 
And so we must do it with a clear conscience. And he says, when you are slandered. So this time he doesn't say, if you are slandered. He says, when you are slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And this is almost identical to verse 12 in chapter 2. And we went over this a couple months ago. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's just basically saying the same thing. Having a good conscience, doing what is good, so that when you are slandered, which slandered isn't that bad of persecution, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And how will they be put to shame? They're going to have to deal with God. They will bow the knee to Christ and confess that he is Lord everywhere. Everyone will. But they can do it now and not be put to shame. They can be forgiven of persecuting you. They can be forgiven of killing you if they come to Christ. But if they don't, they will be put to shame. And put to shame, I mean, I could scare you with being in hell. But put to shame, being in all of eternity without God and without Christ, that's more scary to me. Let's look at 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And all he's done here is repeated what he said in verses 2 and 20. And he said this to the slaves. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I'll read that again in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And he's basically saying, you have no excuse for not being zealous and doing what is good. Not being zealous for good. And if you suffer, that's God's will. He is sovereign. He's in control of that. He appointed every hair on your head. He appointed the day you were born, the day you will die. And he appointed this person to come and slander you for his glory, for his namesake. And I wrote this down, and I think we'll read it. First uh, Peter 4, verses 15 through 18. Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then he ends with these two questions. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved or saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So with that, we'll just end right there. Say amen.